I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. So here we are after five U.S. administrations, not back to starting zero, because I think we are in a worse spot than we were ever in the past. We are stuck. There's not much we can do in terms of trying to entice the North Koreans back to the negotiating table. The question of what to do about North Korea and its nuclear weapons has fallen off Washington's radar. The war in Ukraine, competition with China, protests in Iran, inflation, climate change, food insecurity, the list of problems consuming U.S. foreign policymakers is long. But while the world is preoccupied, Kim Jong-un continues developing his country's nuclear program with a possible seventh nuclear test in the works. Sumi Terry, a former CIA analyst and National Security Council official, warns that Washington seems to have little idea what to do about the problem, even as the threat grows worse and worse. Sue, thanks for being here. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm especially thrilled to be able to have this conversation today because I was in Korea last week and there at a moment when North Korea had been testing more and better missiles than ever before when Kim Jong-un has released a new nuclear doctrine that seems to expand the range of circumstances under which he might use a nuclear weapon. And when people are also expecting another North Korean nuclear test, this would be the seventh. Uh, The first one was in 2006. So I'm eager to step back and trace the the long history of nuclear tensions on the Korean Peninsula and our failed efforts to, to stop North Korea's nuclear weapons development, something that you wrote about brilliantly in a foreign affairs essay last year. But let's start with with this moment and what's happening. What has Kim up to? What do you make of this flurry of activity in recent months? Since the failure of the Hanoi summit in 2019, North Korea has been really making qualitative and quantitative advances on both of their nuclear and missile program. So the, the Hanoi summit was the, the second of the kind of flashy meetings between President Trump and Kim. That's right. And it failed in a sense that, remember, President Trump just walked out after they didn't even go through the whole summit. President Trump swiftly walked out. And you remember Kim Jong-un rode 60-hour train ride to get to Hanoi summit. So that failed. And since then, North Korea has been really focusing on advancing their nuclear missile program. And now, you know, we, we have all these numbers, right? They have up to 60 nuclear warheads. They, they produce enough fissile material to make additional dozen bombs a year. And they've been really diversifying their missile arsenal. So we've seen in the past year where North Korea tested all these new missile technologies, right? Submarine launched uh, missile, train-mounted ballistic missile, new surface-to-air defense missile system, hypersonic missiles, and so on. And in 2022, North Korea tested around, I think, 100 missiles. And this is with the goal of securing credible, survivable second strike capability. So in the recent months, we've seen on October 3rd, uh, North Korea carrying out its longest ever missile demonstration, this intermediate ballistic missile that flew over Japan that has capacity to reach Guam. And then, of course, on November 18th, North Korea successfully tested Hwasong-17 intercontinental ballistic missile. And that's the largest road mobile liquid-filled ICBM in the world, right? And it it flew nearly 1,000 kilometers, which means it has range of at least 15,000 kilometers. It's basically capable of hitting any target in the United States. So one, one interpretation that you've heard from some analysts of this activity in recent months is that it's a response both to the arrival of a, of a new, more hawkish government in Seoul, President Yoon's government, and then also the 
the restarting of relatively expansive uh, military exercises uh, between the South Koreans and the United States. Do you do you see any reaction by the North Koreans to this, or was this all kind of in train before President Yoon was in power? I think this was all in train. After the failure of the Hanoi summit, Kim Jong-un is determined to get to the next level in terms of, technically speaking, they know they're not going to get anything out of the Biden administration, even if they sit down with the Biden administration. Kim Jong-un couldn't even get anything out of the Trump administration. So I think saying, you know, South Korean government, hawkish government, I think all of that is an excuse. This was all in the train and North Korea is headed to further diversifying their nuclear missile capability and advancing their program. And they they need to hit certain milestones, right? So this Hwasong-17 missile, this missile is designed to carry up to four nuclear warheads, right? Multiple nuclear warheads. And perfecting this uh, so-called multiple independently targetable reentry vehicle, this MIRV capability. This is something that North Koreans wanted to achieve for some some time because it makes sense from North Korea's perspective. Why not have this ability to hit Manhattan and Washington at the same time? And these missiles are certainly more cost-effective than missiles that have single warheads. And And this kind of MIRV capacity will frustrate U.S. missile defenses and really enhance their capability or ability to strike U.S. mainland with nuclear missiles. So North Korea wants to achieve these kind of capabilities before they can sit down with with Americans again. So I think, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of government is in South Korea. Even if Lee Jae-myung won, it would have been the same thing. It's not like North Korea was having a good relationship with the Moon Jae-in administration in the last year of the Moon Jae-in administration. And I, I realize it's a little hard to assess um, just how successful some of these missile tests are from from afar. But what is your best assessment of how reliable those capabilities are? Are they, in fact, able to hit Manhattan at this point? As we we you know sit here having this conversation in New York. Yes, I think they have demonstrated that capability uh, that they will be able to hit something. I don't know if it'll be. Um, exactly what they targeted, but they have ability to hit something in the United States, hit any place in the United States. So I, I want to step back and look at the kind of history of U.S. policy on, on on this issue. I think at this particular moment, the debate in Washington seems totally stuck. There aren't fresh ideas. I, you know, the Biden administration can give you you know a set of talking points about what the policy is, but. It doesn't seem like anyone has much of a sense that it will yield much. You know, we've had diplomacy, both the six-party talks and the the Trump summitry that you mentioned. We've had years of escalating sanctions. We had, you know, Trump's uh, fire and fury and maximum pressure. And throughout that time, you know, Pyongyang has continued testing missiles and continued with nuclear tests. So I'm interested in your kind of assessment of the arc of U.S. policy here, maybe, you know, starting at the beginning in the 1990s. And the unraveling of the first attempts at a diplomatic solution in the early 2000s. But, you know, what do you make of that record? And do you, when you look back, see moments when different policy could have made a difference? You know, were there mistakes or missed opportunities along the way? Well, I think it's fair to say we have failed if our goal is denuclearization. As you mentioned, our first nuclear crisis really began in early 1990s. If the U.S. ever had an option to conduct a sort of a limited strike, that would have been then before North Korea actually developed nuclear weapons. So, of course, this um, crisis occurred in the 1990s. The Clinton administration actively really thought about militarily responding. They didn't. Former President Jimmy Carter 
ended up going to North Korea. And then, of course, the United States had first bilateral agreement with North Korea in 1994. Kim Il-sung died a few months before, and that bilateral agreement was conducted, uh, concluded with Kim Jong-il. So we had a bilateral agreement, the agreed framework of 1994. And of course, that collapsed when President Bush came into office. It's not necessarily because of President Bush, but there's different reasons why that agreement collapsed, but it did collapse. And then during the Bush administration, we tried multilateral negotiations, right? We, the, the idea was, okay, the bilateral agreement did not work. Let's get China involved. Let's get Russia involved. Let's get Japan involved. Let's get South Korea involved. And of course, we pursued something called six-party talks. And we had multiple agreements with North Korea. We have 2005 agreement 2007, joint statement. And so getting to agreements with North Korea is not necessarily the problem. It's just that every single time it falls apart over verification. And I was there, I was at the NSC. You know, we tried very, very hard uh, to make something work, um, but it didn't. And, you know, the Obama administration came in and President Obama actually wanted to pursue six-party talks uh, and continue with that. But if you remember, Within first four months of the Obama administration coming in, North Korea conducted another nuclear test, long-range missile test, and, and basically declared that they're going to continue to produce uranium or pursue uranium enrichment program, and the six-party talks is over. So the Obama administration then pursued something called strategic patience policy. You know, Bob Gates famously said, I'm not going to buy the same horse for the third time, meaning that unless North Korea is serious about denuclearization. There's just no point of getting into negotiations and going through this whole cycle, provocation and charm offensive and, and concession cycle. And then, you know, we saw what happened with the Trump administration. President Trump pursued something called maximum pressure policy. I, everybody remembers 2017 uh, with the whole fire and fury and Rocky Man on a suicide mission. My button is bigger, your button is bigger. All of that um, and really stepping up on, on the sanctions front. And then we had abrupt shift to symmetry and diplomacy in 2018. And we sat down, President Trump sat down with Kim Jong-un three times, exchanged beautiful love letters. And that didn't work. And here, here we are, where we just had another ICBM test that we just talked about. So this is five U.S. administrations from Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump and now President Biden. And I'm not sure what the Biden administration is policy is, to be honest with you, because the Biden administration says this is not Trump's policy of all or nothing grand bargain, and this is not Obama's policy of strategic patience. But then what is it exactly? Because we're not talking to North Koreans right now. It's not Biden administration's fault, necessarily, uh, because basically they said to the North Koreans, we'll sit down with you anytime, any place, again, without any kind of precondition, and North Koreans are not interested. So here we are after five U.S. administrations, back to, not back to starting zero, because I think we are in a worse spot than we were ever in, in the past. I mean, I'm struck by, first of all, the fact that you, as someone who has worked on this for, for years and follows it as closely as anyone, can't identify what, what U.S. policy is. That just seems like a striking uh, admission. Well, the Biden administration keeps saying what it's not, but... I don't know what is. And, and again, I don't want to necessarily blame the Biden administration, because even if I was in the administration, I wouldn't necessarily know what to recommend other than, you know, what they're doing, because they have reached out to the North Koreans and said, we will sit down with you without preconditions. So what are they supposed to do exactly? Some people say we need to make dramatic gesture like 
preemptively lifting sanctions or not. But that's not realistic. I mean, this cannot be the response to, you know, all the hundred missile tests and ICBM tests is to just unilaterally lift sanctions. So there's, we're stuck. There's not much we can do uh, in terms of trying to entice the North Koreans back to the negotiating table. I think the only real debate that seems to be going on in the U- in U.S. policy circles right now is this question of whether we should give up on the goal of denuclearization, which is essentially saying, look, North Korea is not going to give up its nuclear weapons. We don't need to you know, officially recognize it as a nuclear weapons state under the Non-proliferation treaty and, and and make that a kind of formal admission, but to you know essentially say, look, we're not aiming for denuclearization of the of of the Korean Peninsula, which has been the long-standing goal, and instead we're going to just accept you as a as a nuclear weapons power de facto and enter into a debate about arms control. I mean, what what do you make of that debate, and do you see any any path forward there? So I think Jeffrey Lewis wrote a piece in New York Times, and he has arms control experts like Jeffrey Lewis and Anki Panda and others articulate this quite well. And I understand what they are saying in terms of denuclearization. I don't think there's any serious Korea watcher that's out there that actually believes North Korea will ever give up nuclear weapons. You know, how do we get the, how do we even sit down with the North Koreans when they're not ready. I think it's unrealistic for us to just simply say, okay, fine, you guys win. We are giving up denuclearization. I just don't see the Biden administration doing that or any policymaker doing that. And there are risks that are involved with doing that. Never mind just the signal that's sending to Iran and other rogue actors that all you have to do is just keep at it and you will succeed. Uh, South Koreans are already talking about strengthening extended nuclear deterrence. The public already supports South Korea, you know, perhaps developing their own indigenous nuclear capability. There's a real risk of regional proliferation, right, with South Korea. I'm sure you were just at a conference in Seoul. I'm sure this used to be such a fringe idea, but now it's something that people talk about regularly. So there's a risk of, of regional proliferation. Does it really solve the North Korean problem or so? Um, it's, it, I'm not sure if it does, uh, because after recognizing North Korea's nuclear weapons power, uh, which is a long-term goal that they've been seeking, I'm not sure their behavior is going to get any better. We might have more emboldened North Korea. And there's always the risk of conventional attacks, miscalculation, cyber attacks. So I'm just not sure if this is the solution. And there's a, just logistically, just getting there, I think, would be also very difficult. And I just don't see the Biden administration pursuing that path. If you were back at the at the NSC and this administration, what would you be advising? Is there is there anything we can do on the margins? Is is there a better strategy, or is kind of you know managing the problem the best we can hope for at this moment? I think we, I think that's exactly right. I think right now reducing the threat and managing the threat is in the short term the only option that we really have. I do think that we need to strengthen our extended nuclear umbrella. We need to make South Korea feel more comfortable uh, because I think South Koreans are, you know, and it makes sense. The North Koreans have been very focused on tactical nuclear weapons. And as you mentioned, they've been making, you know, threats of preemptive use. They've had this new nuclear doctrine that they just announced that dramatically really lowers the threshold for nuclear use. So it starts with, first of all, working with South Korea to strengthen our extended nuclear deterrence. And then there are a lot of things that we can do to step up our deterrence measures. So that, and, and of course, a trilateral co- cooperation with Japan. But beyond that, 
then it's more of a long-term goal of what we are trying to do with North Korea. And for me, you know, I've been on this path of sort of getting information into North Korea, information penetration campaign, but there's a whole different kind of conversation. But I don't see any sort of easy solution or any kind of uh, realistic option that we can pursue that will, you know, get us closer to our denuclearization goal. So let's let's turn to that that South Korean debate, and you know that was certainly a topic that dominated conversation when I when I was just in Seoul. And it's certainly going to be, I think, a central part of the debate both between you know the within South Korea and also between Washington and, and Seoul in the years ahead. Maybe just to go to the basics, what is the kind of state of extended deterrence, and and what, to your mind, has kind of prompted concerns in South Korea about the reliability of it? The previous administration under President Trump, there was this talk of putting out U.S. troops on the Korean Peninsula and so on. And that, remember the whole deliberation and discussion and negotiation over burden sharing and this talk of why do we have U.S. forces there? It's too expensive. Maybe we need to pull them out. That kind of talk and rhetoric got the South Koreans sort of worked up about it, right? Sort of being able to trust the U.S. will always be there for South Korea. Then, of course, we have what we just talked about, this growing um, nuclear missile threat from North Korea. And then the third piece of that is that there are few options left, and there's no way to sort of turn back the clock on the North Korea's nuclear program. So the combination of all of this got South Koreans, I think, very understandably fearful of what could happen. And then just these uh, months, um, actually started from April of this year, when North Korea tested all these tactical nuclear, not, not nuclear weapons, but missiles, you know, short range missiles that could target different places in South Korea. It didn't look like it was just an R&D. It looked like it was sort of operational planning. And North Korea lowering the threshold for the first use of nuclear weapons. So all of these factors you know, combined are making South Korea feel very insecure about the state of U.S. You know, commitment to defend South Korea. So there is growing support among the South Korean public, first of all, for acquiring nuclear weapons. Um, now, I don't know if these polls are very detailed to sort of say to the South Koreans, hey, these are the consequences of going nuclear, or is a question just posed as, how do you, you know, should South Korea nu- go nuclear? And, and was that something like 70% in a recent poll? There was some right. very striking There's number. multiple polls conducted. ASAN did a poll, ASAN Institute, the Chicago Council. You know, the multiple polls that show by some 70% of the South Korean public support South Korea developing their own nuclear weapons program. But of course, you know, if they, if they go nuclear, you know, this is really a p- sort of collapse of our prolif- non-proliferation strategy. So the U.S. is, uh, you know, this is not something that U.S. government supports. There are a lot of risks that's involved for South Korea to pursue such a path, right? It will create a rift uh, between us and South Korea uh, and so on. But this is still something that the public supports. So you've, as you've seen in Seoul, there's just a lot of discussion and debate uh, on this topic. And the fear is not so much about specific policy decisions, but when you have a, a North Korean ICBM that could potentially hit a U.S. city, the fear is that the U.S. wouldn't retaliate for an attack on South Korea if San Francisco were at risk, right? The, the, would we trade San Francisco for Seoul is the way the way they put this question. And the fear is that, you know, ultimately a U.S. decision maker would 
decide to preserve an American city, even if it meant giving up our commitment to deter an attack on South Korea. Is that is that the the, the right way of putting that uh, that logic? That's that's exactly right. And Kim Jong Un this year had been also warning of this preemptive use and preemptive attack. He ominously warned uh, at a military parade on the on April 25th, you know, saying, you know, the the regime envisions a wider role for their nuclear arsenal. It's going to be beyond self-defense, that they could use it for all kinds of purposes, right? And Kim Yo-jong said this, and again, the nuclear do nuclear doctrines states all this. And September 9th, when at a this parliamentary meeting, they announced five conditions where they will launch preemptive strikes. That's I think the concern is. Imagine a scenario in the future. So it's not right now that they necessarily think the U.S. is not going to come to South Korea's aid. But imagine a scenario in which in the future, maybe perhaps President Trump is back in the office or we have a new isolationist U.S. president and North Korea has perfected their nuclear and missile capability. They have this MIRV capability. They can miniaturize. They, you know, they have 200 nuclear Warheads. This is a Rand Corporation that said, you know, North Korea could up to have up to 200 nuclear warheads by 2027. That's five years from now. The idea is, if North Korea conducts a very tactical strike on South Korea, right, or around the peninsula, there's not a huge suffering or civilian casualty or whatnot. Will the U.S. actually come into South Korea's aid? As you said, you know, risk San Francisco for Seoul. That's kind of a popular cliche that everybody's been using. But yeah, that's the concern. And if I, you know, try to see this through the eyes of a South Korean policymaker, that seems like a pretty legitimate concern. If I, you know, even leaving aside President Trump or a Trump-like president, it's you know easy to imagine an American leader making that calculation, right? That. We're not going to risk a intercontinental, you know, nuclear war that could bring incredible devastation in, in order to deter that attack. So, is there some rationality to the the push for a South Korean nuclear weapon in that regard? Well, absolutely. And one of Kim Jong Un's goal, and the South Koreans know this, one of North Korea's goal has also been achieving sort of decoupling of the U- U.S. rock alliance. Right? This is sort of beyond survival of the regime. They they've been seeking decoupling of of U.S. and South Korea this alliance. So why is it so difficult to assume that Kim Jong Un could calculate that if he makes threats, or even if he uses nuclear weapons preemptively, tactical nuclear weapon, the U.S. will not retaliate as long as he uh, he has this long-range ICBM force that threatens U.S. mainland, right? He could figure that U.S. simply just don't have the will uh, to defend South Korea, again, particularly under a future isolationist president. And I think Kim Jong-un also, I think another factor that we should think about is that I think, you know, he was he could be encouraged by Putin's nuclear saber rattling, right? To to imagine that U.S. could be or can be forced to back off uh, with such threats of preemptive use, right? Because even though United States has not stopped supporting Ukraine, we did not provide long-range weapons or implement no-fly zone or you know send troops to Ukraine for fear of provoking nuclear Russia. So I think. From Kim Jong Un's mind, I mean, this is sort of the wrong lesson that he's getting from the Ukraine conflict. I mean, is that the wrong lesson? I think you you wrote in a piece for for FA this fall. You know, only WMDs. I'm quoting you here. Only WMDs, it seems, can guarantee regime survival. That seems like a decent conclusion to draw from watching 
how the Ukraine has transpired if you're if you're sitting in Pyongyang. Absolutely. So, you know, North Koreans have obviously drawn all kinds of conclusions from Iraq and Libya that giving up nuclear weapons will be end of the regime. And then that lesson has only been reinforced by Russia's invasion of Ukraine because Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons uh, in 1994. So there's that lesson. And the second lesson is watching Putin make these kind of threats and us not being involved to the degree, um, like sending troops and whatnot. I think that's another lesson that Kim Jong-un has drawn from this conflict. Just to, to try to try to trace a somewhat more optimistic path forward here, you know, I suppose the the arms control advocate might say, you know, North Korea is going to spend some more time testing and getting uh, um, more assurance about its own capabilities and its own ability to, to threaten the United States, I suppose. That might be a moment when diplomacy becomes possible. Is that, is there any plausibility to that? And if so, is there, you know, kind of lessons from the record of U.S. diplomacy, whether uh, the six-party talks under the Bush administration, or the you know Trump uh, summitry in um, in Hanoi, and uh, I believe Singapore before that. I mean, is there is there anything that can come of that kind of diplomatic effort? I think what you just said is right. I think diplomatic effort could be successful, or I think Kim Jong Un will eventually sit down with the Americans. They've always done that, but I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. There's no reason, even if I'm advising Kim Jong Un. I would not necessarily advise him to sit down with the Biden administration now. For what? I mean, what are they going to get from the Biden administration, right? And I think I mentioned in the foreign affairs piece that the the geopolitical environment right now is favorable for North Korea to continue down this path of perfecting their nuclear missile capability, right? We look what happened with an ICBM test. The United Nations Security Council uh, could not even come up with any kind of resolution. This is an ICBM test. Now, with the whole U.S.-China competition and this whole Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think it just made the the region even more bifurcated. We are seeing this kind of uneasy alliance between Xi Jinping, Putin, and Kim Jong-un. North Korea has recently even boasted about how they are close to China, even ex- more you know close than even normal. And then, of course, you know, Russia, uh, the North Koreans have been supplying Russia with artillery. And so on. So we don't see any kind of action from UNSC. We see no pressure coming from China and Russia. They're not really implementing sanctions or pressure in North Korea. So what consequence is there for North Korea to continually going down this path? There's no real implication or consequence for North Korea. So they will continue. And if I'm Kim Jong-un, I will do the same. And then once you increase the leverage, then you sit down with Americans and see what, what can be achieved. So let's let's linger on the the China dimension because I think it's um, worth underscoring that the the current state of the the China North Korea relationship is actually not in keeping with where it was in the previous couple of decades. So can you can you give a sense of how historically China has seen North Korea as this you know kind of its only ally, but also an irritant that makes trouble for it? And of course, as you as you noted in the the six party talks that you were involved in, China was one of the the, the, the players there and seem to be, you know, relatively intent on working with other international capitals, including Washington, to to find some kind of solution here. So so wh- where was China uh, a decade or two ago and how has China policy shifted, Chinese policy shifted on North Korea in the last few years? Well, China has always supported North Korea. Um, it's, it's North Korea's key ally, right? North Korea's, 90% of North Korea's trade is with China. And so they were never 
all that much willing to pressure North Korea. I mean, here and there, they'll cut off oil for a few days, but they really are concerned about regime instability. Um, they could potentially lead to regime collapse and unify Korea that's pro-United States. So China's interest, it's not that they want North Korea to have nuclear weapons. They don't. But their priority always has been stability over nuclear weapons, right? They themselves say no war, no instability, no nukes in that order. But that said, in the past decade, Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un, until 2018, they were not close. If you remember, Xi Jinping has never met with Kim Jong-un. He has never invited Kim Jong-un to China. He has never gone to Pyongyang. Since Kim Jong-un came to power, Xi Jinping was getting increasingly more irritated. China was very unhappy with North Korea. Even though they had to continually support North Korea, Xi Jinping was not happy with Kim. But then, of course, what happened was with summitry and diplomacy of 2018, the moment President Trump announced that he's going to meet with Kim Jong-un, Xi Jinping didn't want to sit in the sidelines and wanted to get involved. So, of course, since then, I think China, Xi Jinping met with Kim Jong-un now four times, four or five times, invited Kim Jong-un to Beijing. Xi Jinping himself went to Pyongyang multiple times. So that relationship has now changed. And again, now also with intensifying U.S.-China competition and Putin's um, invasion of Ukraine, now we have a different kind of environment where they're getting on. But now we've seen them getting even closer. So that's where we are with China. So Xi Jinping at this point sees, while he doesn't love the kind of erratic uh, behavior by, by Kim and you know, doesn't necessarily want nuclear escalation. He sees Kim as a useful irritant to the U.S. in a way to kind of keep South Korea focused on. It gives him some leverage over South Korea when it comes to South Korea's own approach to China. He just sees it in the in the context of this broader competition and finds Kim useful in that regard at this point. Yes, I I I, I do think that. I think both Beijing and Moscow now view you know, North Korea's provocations as a means to gain an advantage over Washington rather than concerning threat to regional stability. So we're not going to see them cooperating with Washington or international community to enforce sanctions. They're going to continually veto any kind of further action on North Korea, as we saw with the ICBM test. So I don't see them being remotely helpful with, with the North Korean situation going forward. We'll be back after a short break. Public Affairs is a leading publisher of nonfiction books, and their authors, from Gary Kasparov to Shoshana Zuboff, have been at the heart of the national and global conversation. Now available in hardcover, The Avoidable War by Kevin Rudd demystifies the actions of Xi Jinping and provides concrete steps to avoiding the geopolitical disaster that war between the U.S. and China would bring. To learn more about The Avoidable War and other public affairs books, visit www publicaffairsbooks.com. So before we close, I want to talk a bit about the state of, of North Korea and the North Korean regime. You know, there's been, I think, occasional uh, predictions of, you know, instability or collapse. After the pandemic started, there were, you know, analyses suggesting that if COVID hit North Korea, it would be very vulnerable. I think you you wrote one of those for foreign affairs. You weren't predicting collapse, but you were highlighting some of the risks and and the difficulties that North Korea would have handling COVID. What is your sense of of Kim's power of the state of the the regime? And you know, I guess why is it so apparently resilient? I mean, we've been watching this incredibly strange, isolated regime 
for for years and years and wondering how long it can survive. And it's, you know, I think gone on longer than uh, casual observers would have expected a decade or two ago. If you go to any kind of political science conference on regime stability, and you look at various indicators and signposts, and I know intelligence community, we have this huge chart of various signposts and indicators for stability, instability. North Korea should have collapsed a long time ago. When we just talk about the healthcare infrastructure, the John Hopkins University did this whole report, Health Index, looked at 195 countries, and North Korea ranked 193rd out of 195th country. Uh, I think only Eritrea did worse, um, maybe Somalia, on one index, and another index was just 195th out of 195 uh, countries surveyed. Um, so the question is, why does it survive? How does it go on like this, right? So we call it like pillars of stability. So first important pillar is elite support. As long as the elites support the regime, it will just continue on. So it doesn't matter if there's COVID. It doesn't matter if thousands of people die. During the mid-1990s, when it was a height of famine in, in North Korea, where millions of people perished, North Korea still survived because elites support the regime. This is why we need to get to the elites, right? Because elites support the regime, it will continue. And then secondarily, it's such a unique place, right? There are a whole monopoly on information, ideological indoctrination. I don't think normal people understand the level in which the North Korea operates in terms of blockade on information and so on. They don't have internet. For Arab Spring to happen uh, in Tunisia, and remember the whole fruit vendor, there was social media, there was Twitter. There is no internet for the public. People can get mobilized. There are spies in every organization, right? So their level of security apparatus, their fear tactics, their monopoly on information, all of that combined with elite support of the regime makes North Korea survive as a state. And then, of course, I would say the last piece was its foreign assistance. For many, many years, I mean, still, China is propping up North Korea. And before that, even South Korea under different administration, the you know President Kim Dae-jung and President Noh Myung-hyun, who pursued more of sunshine policy, propped up the regime. And we do too, international community, uh, for a long time supported the regime. I mean, giving aid and so on. So I think that's more of an interesting question. It's such an interesting study of how a country like that survives, but there are reasons why it survives. And right now, Kim is in firm control. He got rid of anybody that could pose any kind of challenge. And this is why he got rid of his uncle right away, Chang Song-tae. This is why he assassinated his half-brother, who has sort of legitimacy to potentially take over just because of the whole, this Baekdu bloodline. So right now, you know, they, he got rid of everybody. So I think Kim Jong-un, it will continually survive, even if people suffer and continue to suffer and the economy is in tanks. And, you know, it, it will continue to survive for some time. Is cyber part of the explanation for its resilience? Is, is North Korea getting enough revenue from its hacking and other cyber activities that that is a, a, a way of funneling resources to the elite and maintaining uh, regime stability? Yes, not only cyber, but illicit activities, I would say, that include cyber is one of the ways that regime survives, right? So, I mean, they have to still have some sort of revenue, and they've been doing, doing all kinds of illicit activities, right? The money laundering, you know, math, all kinds of illicit activities, obviously proliferating missiles, and so on. And now they added cyber to this uh, growing list of in, uh, illicit activities. And... It makes sense from their perspective. 
if they were make money. And so I think for, you know, the, I think it was United Nations that said they made some sort of, I think they quoted $2 billion. Is this one year report talked about $2 billion. And so they're focused on it. There's no question that North Koreans are focused on cyber. They utilize primary and secondary education. They pluck out children from very early age that has, they show any kind of mathematical talents. Then they send them through this very rigorous advanced training um, called you know, cyber warfare operators, just re- raising cyber warriors. They have a whole organization that's devoted to this, the Reconnaissance General Bureau. That's North Korea's agency for uh, clandestine uh, operations and cyber operations. They have, you know, the numbers are like, so they have apparently like some 7,000 cyber warriors, they call cyber warriors, and they're very focused on this. So I'm concerned that this is some, it's sort of here to stay. This, we're going to continually see cyber crimes. And we've seen already many years, a number of years now, um, number of different activities that they've been engaged in. And it, it really makes sense. I just, the last point is because there's a deniability to cyber, no matter what, it's hard to uh, attribute cyber attacks. Exactly. There's a profitability, right? Um, they make money this way. So, you know, why not? This is so I am afraid that this is a sort of one area that they're going to uh, devote a lot of resources to. And I suppose selling weapons and, and munition to Russia will be a, a new source of revenue for the duration of the Ukraine war at this point. North Korea is a serial proliferator. They proliferate everything under the sun. They are used to doing that to make money. They have relationship with Syria. They have relationship with Iran. And now it looks like, you know, they will continually support Russia however they can. So the picture does not look good, does it? People were struck to see um, Kim bring his, um, I believe, nine-year-old daughter out in public a couple of weeks ago. Uh, bringing her to to some you know review of of missiles or something. You expect that we will be seeing her in power sometime in the future. She's so young, so we'll we'll see. So that was very interesting. I was very surprised because it's very unusual for a leader to show children like that. I mean, we even for Kim Jong Il, we haven't seen Kim Jong Un for a very long time. I remember Kim Jong Un. The first time we saw Kim Jong-un was after Kim Jong-un had a stroke in 2009. In 2010 was the first time really they brought out Kim Jong-un and we, the international community, got to even see him before he took power in 2011. So it was, this was very unusual that Kim Jong-un brought out his daughter in, in this matter. I do question why he didn't bring out the older son, because this girl has older brother, a few years older. There's some gossip and rumors around that, but we'll see. A gossip is that the older son is not really from the current wife, but it's from another woman. Uh, intelligence community describes North Korea as the hardest of hard targets. You've spent years uh, both in the intelligence community and the National Security Council, and now as a you know scholar and analyst outside of government, trying to understand both North Korean nuclear weapons development, but also the state of the regime and these other activities. How do you do that? I mean, how, how do we how do we understand what is happening in this incredibly closed, isolated place? So it, it is very hard. It is true. There is a reason why we call North Korea hardest of hard target countries, because even in the height of the Cold War, we had spies in Soviet Union. It's really hard to have human assets, right? Our, I mean, human in North Korea. Can you just imagine? North Koreans can travel from place to place without getting a permission. We possibly cannot run human. So that's really poor. Um, so only people that we can, you know, and in trying to convert North Korean officials that's outside of North Korea, that's very hard. There's various reasons why it's really, why we call it a hard target country. It's such a closed off society. So 
it's tough, but there are a couple of things that we obviously, you know, having dealt with North Korean problem for three decades, there are still things that we have learned. Um, we have experience. You know, we do devote some resources, like we have at least the imagery that's good. This is how, this is how we pick up a lot of their nuclear missile activities. The hardest part is trying to understand regime intentions. What is Kim Jong-un up to? What is, you know, planning? That's really hard to do. But I mean, we but we can't exactly tell our policymakers that, hey, this is really hard, so we can't do it. So, you know, whether it's open source reporting, whether it's working with other think tankers, whether we are writing pieces for foreign affairs and brainstorming together, um, it is, you know, it's a, it's a serious threat that we need to take very seriously that we don't have a lot of solutions to. So we just have to keep working at it. Well, thank, thank you for all the fantastic work you've done in foreign affairs over the last few years trying to make sense of this. And thanks so much for joining us today. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming Dresser, and Marcus Zacharia. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, and Gabrielle Sierra. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks for listening.